The opinions expressed in the Brothers on Law Show are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for personal professional legal advice. Thanks for tuning in to Brothers on Law on Go Country 105. I'm Larry Mandel. And I'm Rob Mandel. And we've been trial attorneys here in Los Angeles for over 40 years. On our show, we will discuss current events, talk about legal issues, and have some very entertaining guests stop by. So stay tuned every week for Brothers on Law right here on Go Country 105. We are so excited to be here on Brothers on Law on Go Country 105. And we have here today one of my good friends, Larry Backman, who I've known for over 35 years, and he was a prosecutor with the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office when I first met him. And since that time, he's been a premier defense attorney, and he's also been a celebrity judge on a show called Hot Bench. What are you currently doing? I have gone from uh, my past... Uh, life as both a federal criminal defense lawyer and then to the show as I as you told everybody to domestic violence cases so I am primarily doing domestic violence cases under the family law umbrella I'm both prosecuting those asking for restraining orders pursuant to the domestic violence prevention act and I'm defending those people who are uh, respondents typically in those cases where one of the spouses, one of the cohabitants are seeking to get a restraining order against them. So I get to wear both hats. All right, when you talk about domestic violence, that means hitting one another or anything else. I mean, what does it really mean? Well, what it really means is that your concept, your preconception of domestic violence is wrong. Domestic violence is a misnomer under California law Today, the Court of Appeals has expanded the definition of abuse far beyond physical abuse. So the days in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, where there may have been a domestic violence case because a man has hit a woman, those days are over. Now the definition of abuse is really anything that disturbs one's emotional calm or peace of mind. So the question really isn't, what is abuse? The question today in our court system is, what's not abuse? What if I'm yelling at my wife? If you're yelling... I'm in her face. I'm yelling and screaming at her. I don't touch her. I'm a foot away from her. If you're in her face and you're harassing her and you're using profanity, you're calling her names, that is abuse. What if if I just don't want to let her back in the house? She can't get back in the house. If you're blocking her way in, if you're blocking her entrance, abuse. But Larry, let's make no mistake about it. There is still a big problem with people uh, physically abusing women. Correct. And, and so how do you help with that sort of thing? So it depends on the individual that's coming to me, whether or not they're the abuser or the victim of abuse. And depending on which individual is seeking my help, I'm going to look at the case differently. If, it's a, if I'm going to be prosecuting someone for abuse, then I'm going to look at the conduct and I'm going to look at family code sections. The Domestic Violence Prevention Act in California is based upon two family code sections, 
6230 and six, I'm sorry, 6320 and 6203. I'm going to look to see if the fact pattern that I have falls within the parameters of those two code sections. And if in fact the facts fall within uh, those parameters, those specified groups of conduct, I am then going to file what's called a DV100, which is a request for the court to impose or issue a temporary domestic violence order. If I get that or I don't get that, uh, it really doesn't matter. I, I would prefer to get the temporary order so that I can have protection for my client in place. But what happens is when that petition, when that request is made of the court for a temporary protective order, the court has to set the matter within 21 days for a hearing on the request for a permanent order. And that trial date, that hearing date, is set whether you get the temporary or you don't get the temporary. All right. I want to break it down a little bit. When you say prosecuting, you're not a prosecutor. No. Right? No. You're just representing the person in family law court? In family law court. But I use the term prosecution because, to me, a domestic violence case is quasi-criminal. It's What does that mean, quasi Quasi. There are criminal. There are criminal overtones. You're quasi too. You're, you're Rob. very quasi. Sorry. Well, you know, quasi is quasi. What can I say? Yeah, yeah. You quasi know, it's all kind of like yeah. crazy. Kinda, yeah. kinda like. But the reality is, you know, there. Look, domestic violence can go in two different arenas, uh, and sometimes they can go concurrently in both of the forms. One would be a domestic violence protection order being requested in the family law umbrella. The other is criminal. If, you know, Rob brought up physical violence. If there's physical violence and there's injuries and a police report was made, an arrest was made, then typically that case will go criminal. There is nothing to prevent the case from going both down the criminal path and in the family law arena, provided that domestic relationship exists. So if it's a cohabitant, if it's someone who is married, if it's parents of an individual, those cases oftentimes go in both or proceed in both forums. And I am oftentimes retained first as criminal defense counsel to go and defend the person in criminal court, as well as defending him in the family law court for the domestic violence restraining order. And that gives continuity of counsel. That gives me a leg up in you know, there are all of these technicalities that I can go into. I don't know how deep the two of you want to go. Well, I well, want to might be a little down. boring for our <laughs> no, audience it's not boring, on the but technicalities, but I want to I want to well, do clarify one thing though, Rob. I, I I think I jumped in first. Well, okay, tag your it. There you go. Okay, I now that's harassment, break. Rob. Right. Do you right. want to file a civil I harassment? Was there, you represent Larry? me, Larry. I, I, I will represent help. you because you know I've always liked you better than Rob. <laughs> Well, there's a reason for that. He's a little annoying, but I love him anyway. Well, looks aren't everything. But let me tell you something. Uh, I want to break this down more. I'm a woman. Yes. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm a person. Are you looking for an argument? Yes. <laughs> I, you should change your clothes now, Rob. I'm a person. I believe I've been abused by my spouse, by my partner, okay, man or woman. 
what do I do? I, I'm not going to just get on the phone and start calling Larry Backman. I, I may not even know who you are, where to go. What do I do? What's my very first step? All right. So the question is, Rob, really, what is the abuse? If it's physical, even if it's harassing and it's emotional abuse, my advice, you should call 911. You make a police report. You document it. Police will come out. If they're doing their job the right way, they're going to try and uh, de-escalate the situation. If there's no bruising, abrasions, there's no physical injuries, then they're going to try and separate the two of you until the two of you can calm down and work it out. If there are on those cases or those occasions in which there are bruises, there's physical injury that is documented, then LAPD's procedure calls for them to make an arrest. So in that case, the case is going to go criminal. And depend, And if you're the abuser in that case and you're arrested, you're hopefully you're going to call a defense lawyer and you are going to get representation to take you through the criminal process. Now, the person who's been abused has made the police report, has done all what you just said, and now wants to go that next step and get that restraining order from a person like you, or maybe even you, how do they do it? So they would call me up, then they get together with me, and what we do is we prepare the forms, those DV-100 forms that I told you, and we prepare a declaration in support of the request for a restraining order. And so in the declaration, typically what I do is I sit, I meet with them, I actually have my client usually sit at the desk with me, I'm typing out a declaration, which is a story, it's a history of their relationship, it's a history as to whether or not there's been abuse in the marriage and the relationship, and then we talk about the most recent incident of abuse, and I detail it. If the abuse is physical, then I'm going to hopefully have photographs that I can attach to the declaration so that when a judge reads it, they see the photographs, they see the corroborative evidence. If it's a harassment case, nine out of 10 times, I'm gonna have ugly emails, I'm gonna have ugly text messages that are harassing, they're, uh, they're vulgar, and those are going to be attached to the declaration as corroborative evidence of the fact that one of the parties is harassing the other. How fast can you get Now I now deem that my brother can talk. Go ahead. Oh. Thank you, Rob. Now, how fast can you get into court? Uh, as soon as I get the declaration together. Usually it's a day process. Now, can you go in on an expedited matter? You can. So, And that's called ex parte. So there's two ways to do that. Uh, one is no notice ex parte, and the other is to give notice. So it's not a party with your ex. No, it is not a party. Well, in a way, they'll become your ex, so... Kind of well, ex-party can make your party that you were partners with your ex. ex. Okay, I got it. Have you suffered or been injured by someone else's negligence? When you need a legal team that will stand up for what is right, won't give up the fight and obtain justice, call 818-886-6600. Mandel Trial Lawyers specializes in personal injury cases of all types. Whether it's a car accident, product or premises liability, dog bite, or a catastrophic injury, Mandel Trial Lawyers are there for you when the fight is worth it. Call now for your free consultation, 818-886-6600. Let the scales of justice tip in your favor. So the, the no notice is when the person that I represent is really afraid that if she tells her partner or his partner uh, that 
we're going in and we're seeking a restraining order, they're worried the other side's going to blow up and go nuts. And then there's a risk of more injury. So in those, in those scenarios, we don't give notice. We just go into the court and we seek our restraining order on a temporary basis, as I told you. If we think that there's no downside for additional injury or risk, then what we do is we'll give notice to the other side and uh, we will go in and we will seek the restraining order. And then they have a chance to respond to the ex parte notice. And the ex parte notice is 24 hours. So we either go in immediately with no notice or we give 24 hours notice and then go in. And that's how the process works. And you've seen abuse on both sides, not I just have. women and men, right? So that brings up a whole nother can of worms. Let's hear that worm. <clears throat> that's a whole nother can <laughs> of worms. The can, not the oh. worm. <laughs> so here's what worms a worm might do be more. Yeah. But, so but here, do cans. <laughs> here's what happens when you give notice. So typically when you give notice to the other side, the other side is going to file a competing request for a restraining order. And that puts them on a level playing field because the analysis that the court has to undergo at the hearing or at the trial for a permanent restraining order is who is the primary aggressor. So the court, if both sides are claiming the other side is abusive, then the court has to determine who is the primary aggressor. And when we undergo that analysis, it's, it's decided because typically in the family law arena, in most of these cases, there's kids involved. So usually these are married couples uh, or they're uh, cohabitants who have a child. When a minor child is involved, the Domestic Violence Prevention Act and the request for a permanent restraining order is really used as a tactical weapon. And the tactical weapon is there is a family code section called Family Code 3044, which says that if there is a finding of abuse against one parent or the other, the abuser who the finding is made against is not entitled to joint legal or joint physical custody of the minor. And who makes that determination? The judge. The family a judge, judge, not a jury. No, no, there are no jury trials in this form, right. only in the criminal form. So you've got a judge who is going to, if he makes a finding of abuse. What about she makes a finding? <laughs> uh, you know, you caught me. You just, don't throw the man <laughs> off mean, his game. Sorry. You mean that implied bias? <laughs> yes. So, yeah. yeah. You know, the question to be asked today is what is not, what's not abuse? What's considered not abuse? Not what is abuse? I mean, the pendulum has swung so far in the one direction that everything can really be made out to be abuse. So it's a broad stroke. It's a real broad stroke. All right, so let stroke. me ask you this then, Larry. What do you suggest people do to stay out of this dilemma? Well, you know, again, if we're talking about emotional abuse as opposed to physical, um, that's where the question's applicable. I think if there's harassment, if there's abuse going on, if the couple can work it out, go to therapy, get counseling, and work on the relationship, that's always a better choice than going into the court system. You don't want, you know, as much as I would love the business, you don't want to come see me on this stuff. You, you want don't to be want able to, to need a lawyer. No, and you don't want to go to court. It is, you know, family law downtown Los Angeles, I call it the hall of the walking wounded. And it truly is. Yeah. So, 
Uh, you don't want to go there. If you can avoid it, avoid it. Yeah, that's right. good advice. All right, great advice. Tip of the day. Yeah. Avoid family law court. Yes, and that's a great tip. Now it's time to check our mailbox, our message box. Now it's time to check the Mandel message box. Sharon from Sherman Oaks writes in, I had a contractor come and remodel my bathroom. He did not finish the project, and now he's not returning my phone calls or texts. It's been six weeks since he was here. I paid the guy 75% of the job. What steps do I take now? Sounds like that's a good case for some physical abuse right there. What do you think, Larry? Um, I'm going to send you down there to handle it, Rob. Yeah, that could be abuse. Well, because I've been in Sharon's position all too many times, I do. I would empathize with her if she took a little uh, her own hammer to the guy's head at that point. But uh, what you know, we're all lawyers. I'm sure we've all seen these situations. What can you do when you when you are unfortunately made a, a poor decision to pay a lot of money up front for a job that wasn't done by a contractor? So when I was doing federal defense work, representing Mexican mafia, Aryan Brotherhood members, I could always give her the number and yes. the name of one of my former clients. Right. Okay, that's right. not going to work. <laughs> yes. But what will work is if you go maybe go to the state of California contractors licensing board and contact them and find out what the status of the person's license is. File a complaint. File a complaint. And preventatively, I mean, if you're going to have a contractor do work, you need to have a contract and set forth the parameters of how much you're going to pay and how much of the job is going to be completed and not put yourself in this situation. Well, okay, but you just jumped a step because now this person, Sharon, is in that position. I got it. So what does she do now? Everybody here. So, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda, right? But um, what she does now is, like you just said, file a complaint with the contractor's license board. And then you, you, you may, now you could go to small claims court if it's under 10 grand. That is owed, but if it's over ten grand, you have to call a Larry. Well, you can call me. <laughs> oh, you do that stuff now too. Yeah. All right, Larry. We're gonna segue back to what you do and and tell us, Larry. What is the hardest case you've ever had to work on? So, uh, that's an easy one for me. Uh, easiest the, of the hardest. Yeah, it is the easiest of the hardest. And, and the reason it was the hardest is because, number one, the length. And number one, the complexity. I did, back in 2001, I did the very first federal death penalty case that was brought by the U.S. Attorney's Office out here in the Central District of California in some 53 years. It was the Mexican Mafia RICO case. And my client was charged in what was called the VICAR. VICARs are violent acts in furtherance of the racketeering enterprise. And my client was charged with the triple homicide in furtherance of Mexican mafia activities. And we were in trial before Judge David Carter for 11 and a half months. Wow. In 2000, uh, 2001, we started. Yeah, that's like um, an OJ case. Yeah, it was, it, it was. But David Carter is an interesting man. He turned what would have been a year and a half trial into 11 and a half months because he would work from seven in the morning, sometimes till 10 at night. And he threatened us with weekends uh, in order to get this case done. But that was, uh, that was a very, very difficult case because, you know, it's almost, it's interesting how things sometimes come full circle. The RICO umbrella allows for the prosecution of 
a number of different crimes, which are predicate acts under the racketeering statute. Murder, attempted murder, narcotic uh, dealing, assaults with deadly weapons. The Domestic Violence Prevention Act, I analogize it to a racketeering act or a racketeering umbrella. Under the DVPA, all of these different acts of abuse constitute predicate acts that are actionable under the DVPA. And so for me, it's almost like this natural transition. You know, I try and think outside the box and I think what factual emotional abuse act or physical abuse act can I bring in under this DV umbrella, almost akin to a criminal act that is a predicate act under the racketeering statute. DV meaning, DV meaning domestic violence. Correct. Okay. Well, so how did that case end up then? What was the outcome? Uh, I got an acquittal in that case. And my client, yeah, that was, that was probably the pinnacle of my career. I was able to get an acquittal uh, on all counts, and my client walked out the front door of the U.S. courthouse after 11 and a half months of trial in that case. So what you're saying is the pinnacle of your career is not sitting here on this radio show with the brothers on law? Uh, that's what point, I'm saying. Rob. Rob, to be blunt, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, Larry, uh, uh, any other uh, cases that come to uh, mind or can, kind of mind? interesting? You know, my favorite part of my practice in my career has always been federal. And the, the, the federal uh, cases have made me the attorney that I am today just because of the meat on the bone, so to speak, the right. complexity they of are those tough. cases. They're tough. You know, you're up against the U.S. government. They have a never-ending uh, ability to investigate the case, get the case together for tr preparation for trial. You know, they have unequaled wealth. And the beauty of those cases, as I say, is the complexity going up against a different talent pool, which is the U.S. Attorney's Office, and a different talent pool in terms of judges. The judges, for the most part, that I found on the federal bench are, again, the best and the brightest. They are the best and the brightest, but they're also the toughest. And they, they can, are. They can be pretty impatient and pretty unforgiving. Yes, they are. They have lifetime appointments. And they don't really need to answer to to you in, in or to us in many regards or almost any regard. Really. But that cuts both ways because they are not afraid to rule in favor of the defense because they have lifetime appointments as opposed to state court judges. And this a lot of state court judges, if any, listen, they may find this to be really unfair or consider this comment to be unfair. But state court judges have to run for re-election and state court judges can be affidavited out of a criminal courtroom if the DA doesn't want them there. So if the DA gets upset because a criminal judge in state court has ruled in favor of the defense and then they go to their boss and they say, let's paper this guy out of the building and that happens, the other judges run in fear and they run in fear that a DA is gonna run against the judge for the next term for reelection. And so that is always in, a judge's, in the back of a judge's mind. I'll give you the perfect example. We had the judge up north, and this is a really hot topic, and this may give you guys some criticism in this case. Do you remember the judge up north in Berkeley who 
uh, ruled right. on that rape case where you right. had that Swimmer. young. Yeah. That's right. So he was voted out of office because he gave a probationary sentence. A light sentence. For whatever uh, reason supposedly. to a rape defendant uh, as opposed to sending that individual to state prison. He's no longer a judge. Now, I don't know if that sentence was right, wrong. I wasn't involved. I didn't follow it. I didn't see the sentencing papers. I don't know what the factors in aggravation or mitigation were. But a federal judge doesn't have to worry about that. That's true. It's not political. That's right. Have you ever been... Wait, I want to ask him something, though. Wait, did I give you permission to talk? You don't have to. I'm your I thought big that brother. was my my uh, prerogative. No, you lost it. All right, well, quickly because <laughs> my my I'm, my memory fades yes. quickly here. Okay, write it down, Larry. Writing it down. Are there any new laws that are coming up that might affect people in general you know, that you know of? How about the bail? One comes to mind is this bail thing. But well, and that that for me is a scary proposition because that that takes effect effect in October. Of 2019. Yeah. So what you have is you no longer have a bail schedule. You have bail being set within the discretion of the judge. What happens if a state court judge uh, decides to give a serious violent offender bail and the DA gets upset at that judge and then papers them out of the building? You think the other judges are then going to be inclined to give bail to white defendants? I don't think so. So again, you've got a pressure that is being put on the judge who's granting bail by the prosecutors. And as opposed to having a set bail schedule where defendants can make bond according to the bail schedule. I don't like it. I think you're going to see abuses and I think you're going to see the state court judges bowing to political pressure brought on by the prosecution. Well, I thought We're this new state. bail law was had something to do with not allowing bail at all in because of economic disparity. Well, I think that's the rationale for it. But ultimately, bond is now within the sole discretion of the judge. And when you have bond within the sole discretion of the court, uh, you've got issues with that. The reason for the Sentencing Reform Act is if you had a defendant who was uh, engaged in narcotic activities and he sold a kilo of cocaine in New York, and you have the same narcotic case in Los Angeles where a defendant was selling a kilo of cocaine in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, a judge, a federal judge, may have given probation, had the ability to give probation to that offender who was selling the narcotics in Los Angeles. The New York judge may have given him a 10-year mandatory minimum. And so Congress wanted to get away and do away with the disparity in sentencing. And so they came up with this sentencing scheme, which was this point count system, so that everybody across the country would be subjected to the same sentencing scheme. We would have uniform sentencing across the country because everybody would have this point count system. Do you think that's fair? Um, no, in fact, uh, the Supreme Court did away with that and found that that was unconstitutional, but that the sentencing court has to look at the guidelines now and consider them as a factor. But the, they have given the judges back the discretion to sentence based on 
the individual before. So another way of my saying, sentencing under the federal sentencing scheme that existed up until about four or five years ago was based upon this uniformity. They sentenced the crime. They did not sentence the defendant. And I'm afraid that with the bail scheme that has been proposed and passed, the crime is going to be given the bail or no bail as opposed to the individual. I see. So I have a quick question for you. And I I get that uh, it's maybe easier or uh, feel good to represent and, and prosecute on behalf of that person that was the victim of domestic violence and you feel they're really a victim. Um, but I'm sure you've also been in many a situation where you're defending the perpetrator of that domestic violence and in your gut, heart of hearts, you know, yeah, they did it. They're guilty. H- how do you do that? Well, are you asking me in a criminal context or in the family law context? In any context. Well, in the criminal context, the answer is easy. Everybody is entitled to a defense, and it is up to the prosecution to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So my job, the way I view my job as a criminal defense lawyer is not to win a conviction, get an acquittal. My job is to ensure that the prosecution is held to their burden of proof and they prove our case, their case beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what separates our criminal justice system from everybody else's. Thank you, Larry, for joining us. Do you want to say one last thing about the family law? No. (laughs) (laughs) Larry, it was great having you on the show. We'd like you to come back again and join us. What do you think? I would love it. Great guest. Thank you. And I think it's now time to wrap it up. So we thank you for tuning in and catch us next week right here on Go Country 105. And just remember, let the scales of justice tip in your favor. The opinions expressed in the Brothers on Law Show are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for personal professional legal advice.